If you would, you can be, good morning. You can open up to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Look at another letter. Look, just as a reminder, we're going through uh, the first part of Revelation a little slower. I think it will help us gain an understanding of uh, John's writing style as he's recording what he's seeing. Remember, these are glimpses through windows into the spirit realm that John, that Jesus is opening up for John to look at and write. Um, but these. I think these are the most understandable parts. That's why we can go a little slower. But these letters to the churches, uh, remember, that's that's representative. These churches are representative of churches, um, and there's there's pe- peculiar things. One that uh, every church is kind of known has a personality, is known for something uh, that Jesus wants to come in and, and reveal Himself to. But also, this these can these differences. And we looked at last week with the. Ephesians who turned from their first love and need to return to the love they had at first. We find ourselves in periods of our lives and seasons of our lives, maybe in different, uh, in these different letters to the churches. So we just want to take time to allow the Lord to investigate our own hearts, allow him to stir us toward faithfulness. And that's what the, the letter to the church in Smyrna is regarding faithfulness. So the title today is Smyrnian Faithfulness. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, God's word says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Holy Spirit, help us in the preaching of your word. You know, we use a lot of things to, to measure life, to measure what's going on in our lives. Uh, and there are some kingdom, some kingdom metrics that are, are shown here in this letter to the church in Smyrna. Um, this is not, you know, last week, uh, just posed the question, I was reminded of it again this week. Like, how do you measure faith? Do we have to move mountains in order to measure faith? Do we have to pray bold things and they happen in order for us to feel like we're measuring up? How do we measure progress and success even in the Christian life? Uh, we have to just remember that it, as God gives us some metrics of his kingdom, He doesn't think of measuring things like we do. He uses a different, otherworldly metric system that refines faith. It doesn't quantify it. It refines it. We learn from this letter to the believers in Smyrna that God uses suffering to refine our faith. His faith metric is suffering. 
We also learn that God does not abandon his people in their suffering, but sustains them. Jesus is with his church in their suffering. I know your tribulation, Jesus tells them. Now, here's my question. God, why not just lift our burdens? Why do we have to walk through this trail of tears? And in the mystery of God, in the wisdom of God that's not ours, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways, they're higher, they're above us, they're holy, they're other than us. So we conclude, this is what we see in Scripture. Jesus' light shines brightest when we're most desperate for him. From our weakness, his power is made known. That's what the Apostle Paul, that's what he, the Lord told the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. The world has its own metric for life and success. Its own measurements, it's usually with bank accounts. And that stands in opposition to God's metric. So here's the, here's the different uh, see, things that we see occurring in this letter. One, we have uh, this metric of poverty and riches. We have a metric of suffering and faithfulness. We have a metric of spiritual opposition and spiritual victory. Jesus wants his church to stand strong in the knowledge that he has of them. Jesus knows. So uh, the big caption for us to consider as we look at this message is that Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna shows us that that when we feel the pressure of life caving in, the kingdom of heaven is advancing. See, I remember years ago coming across a, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. And he said, you know, we, we pray for calm seas in our ride, in our boat ride with Jesus. But it takes longer to get to the, de- to the destination when it's calm seas. When it's rough seas and the wind's blowing, you actually get where you're going faster. And God sometimes gives us some rough seas to get us where he wants us to go. When we're just like, can we just, just nothing, serenity, Lord. That's what I ask for. But when we feel the pressure of life caving in, there's something more happening. It's it's the kingdom advancing in our own hearts and advancing through us. So the first thing to consider is this element that Jesus wants uh, the church in Smyrna to recognize. And that he, he encompasses all things. What Jesus, what what the church there needed most is to understand that Jesus covers all four points of the compass. He's first and last. We see that he's using Isaiah in the the 40s, the chapters of the 40s. God is coming to the people in Israel saying, I'm the one who establishes everything. I'm the one. And here's Isaiah 41, verse 4, who has performed everything. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed. There shall be, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. 
See, the church there, the believers there would have been acquainted with Isaiah. And Jesus is letting them know, I'm the one that spoke then, and I'm speaking now, and I'll be with you. So he is first and last. Think of first and last as the the east-west axis on a compass. But then he says this, who died and came to life. Think of north-south. He died, came to life, he ascended. His resurrection coincide, his death and resurrection coincide with that north-south axis on the compass. He has gone down and he has ascended up in glory. So therefore, he encompasses all things. He's God. Now, why would this reminder be needed for the believers in Smyrna? I think Jesus is revealing that he's bigger than Smyrna. Because Smyrna loved being Smyrna. The city of Smyrna is the present day. It's still in existence. The other churches there don't exist anymore. They've moved. Um, Ephesus is not there. It's an old town, Ephesus, but the the modern-day town is about 35 miles away. Smyrna is still there. It's it's the Turkish town of Ishmir. Back then, uh, Smyrna loved Rome, and they loved building temples for Roman emperors. They loved building temples. They wanted their allegiance to be first among all the other Roman cities. Uh, cities or, or cities, how about that? Um, and the amount of temples they had was first. They had no less than seven temples to gods as well as to emperors who thought they were gods too. Smyrna loved being first. They loved it. They love the prominence that came with being first. They love the prominence. It's like uh, when, when cities celebrate getting the Olympics or maybe the Super Bowl. This was Smyrna all the time. They got them all. They were the New Orleans of the Super Bowls. They got the most. They had them. Smyrna was actually rebuilt a number of times. So it had been resurrected. And it was proud of that too. It was first. The city loomed large for the believers in the church. And Jesus announced that he was bigger than all that made Smyrna proud. He was the first. He was the last, the one who died and came to life. So Jesus stands greater than any person, any politician, any nation that's trying to be first. Jesus stands first. And he gives an encouragement to the church. It's interesting in this that uh, the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia don't get a rebuke in their exhortation. It's all encouragement. It's an exhortation that, hey, you need to do this. You need to do this well. But here's what, what Smyrna is doing well. One, Jesus knows. Jesus knows his church. Not just simply by observation, he's up in heaven looking down. No, he's, remember, he's with his church. He's among the lampstands. He's in the middle, and he's watching those with his eyes of fire. But yet, he knows his church by experience, not by simple observation. His knowledge of them, his knowledge of them is such that he wants to attract them to his knowledge. So, so the church's, the believer's knowledge of him becomes greater than their knowledge of their situations. And that's it's the constant, I think, part of the spiritual battle that we're in every single day is that we, uh, we see what's going on around us and we have knowledge of things around us and we forget the knowledge of God. We forget the knowledge of Christ that is to influence and help us understand how to have 
uh, discernment and proper perspective on what we're looking at. We need the knowledge that Jesus knows us. We sang that earlier, that he will hold me fast. Now, Jesus knows three things. First, he knows their tribulation. And the original word uh, in the, the Greek, is, it means an intense, crushing pressure. The crushing pressure the Smyrnian believers were experiencing was it was more than just the fallout of living in a broken world. We have that type of pressure all the time because things are broken and they break down, including our bodies. This was a different type of pressure. This was an intense pressure of kingdoms colliding. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness in full-on battle. That's the pressure that they're in the middle of. The Smyrnians were not under the crushing pressure from something that they did wrong or neglected. There's no rebuke here. Hey, you've done this wrong. They're under crushing pressure for living the right way. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And there's pressure that's still there. How often we feel like, God, I've, I've done what you asked me to do, and yet this burden and suffering is still there. They were under the crushing pressure for living the right way. They were living for Jesus. They were seeking his kingdom first that he told in Matthew 6, They weren't seeking the first of the culture, calling them to compromise. They're seeking Jesus. And yet they have tribulation for seeking Jesus. Terrell Johnson provides us with a helpful understanding of this original word, which is called, it's, the original word is flipsis. So, a guy who had mouth surgery years ago trying to say flipsis. It's a little interesting. Flipsis is the pressure experienced as the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdom of human beings in rebellion against God. Think about that. That's constant pressure, isn't it? Flipsis is the pressure experienced along the line where kingdoms clash, along the, line, along the line where the kingdom of light clashes with the kingdom of darkness, along the line where the reign of justice clashes with the reign of injustice, along the line where the rule of life clashes with the rule of death. Flipsis is the pressure experienced where human pride is confronted with the call to repentance. And the Smyrnian believers, were, they were holding up well. Jesus knew their tribulation. They knew, he knew their crushing pressure. And this is where we, as disciples of Jesus, this is where we live in that pressure that prides itself on moving far from God and seeking to empty him of his authority and own it ourselves inside of us. Crushing pressure is is the crucible where our faith is refined. You know, the, the, her, a red rather, uh, Amy Carmichael, uh, missionary to India for over 50 years, she said, you know, the, the silversmith never leaves the silver in the fire just for the purpose of just simply burning off the impurities. There's a purpose behind it. See, the silversmith keeps it in the fire so when he pulls it out, he sees his reflection in that silver. That's when he knows it's done. That's when he knows all the impurities are burned off. God allows 
and uses crushing pressure on our lives so we look more like Jesus. So we look more like him. He will not leave us there indefinitely. Jesus knows the church's tribulation. He also knows the church's poverty. Smyrna was a wealthy city. They had a lot going on. Port town, a lot of things happening. But these believers were actually poor. They were physically poor because of their faith. They were most probably squeezed out of the economic life because of their insistence to love Jesus first and not give that little pinch of incense thrown to the altar saying Caesar is Lord. So here's a kingdom metric for us to remember. They might be poor physically, but Jesus is reminding them, but you are rich. How often, especially in our affluence, we have to be reminded our greatest treasure is not the stuff that we have or the money in the bank that gives us security. Our greatest treasure is Jesus in us. We have this treasure in jars of clay, but we have this treasure. Here's the mystery. Christ in you. That's the greatest. So we might be poor, but we're rich. So Jesus knows their tribulation, their poverty, poverty, as well as their slander. This is interesting. The Jews that were surrounding and interacting with the believers back then, uh, these were Jews by ethnicity. They were of the lineage, the physical lineage of Abraham, but they were unbelievers in Jesus as the Messiah. So they were part of a synagogue. And back then, the Jews had special permission in the Roman Empire that exempted them from that pinch of incense that they had to throw and say, Caesar is Lord. It also exempted them from needing to serve in the military. Uh, when Christianity started out, the Roman Empire just saw it as a sect of Judaism. Where they were, because it started with a bunch of Jews, Paul would always go to the synagogue first. And so these, these Jews are getting saved, and now you've got, well, it's just a different sect. Well, what happened is that the Jews, fearing that their exemption would be compromised by these Christians who didn't, they didn't like anyway, turned on the Christians and started turning them into the Roman authorities. Hey, not one of us. Not one of us. You need to watch that one. That, they don't get the exemption. And the Jews turned the Christians into the Roman authorities whenever it suited their security or whenever just it suited their self-interest. Now think about this. These were perhaps family members of these believers turning them into the Roman authorities. These were friends turning them in. One, ones who had been friends turning them in to the Roman authorities. In actuality, family members and friends turning on them to turn them in. But again, this is not surprising because we know what Jesus told and taught his disciples. Mark 13 reminds us the brother, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and child will rise against parents and have them put to death. That's serious. So this slander that happened was turning them in. No, don't like them. They're not one of us. Now, maybe the Jews were a little jealous of the success. Maybe the Jews were jealous of the access that believers had. Whatever it was, they turned them in, turned on them to turn them in. 
And we're reminded those who put their security in earthly means will remove themselves from the spiritual family of God. When we don't trust God for our security and we trust in ourselves, we're on dangerous footing. Here, these Jews who are not, they say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Remember, we have scriptures that say those, all those who were born of Abraham aren't in Abraham. They don't have Abraham's faith. They might have an ethnicity or a bloodline, but they don't have the faith that makes us the family of God, children of God. So the self-interest had put them in a place that they actually were being used by Satan in his attempts to unhinge the purpose of God from his church. Maybe they long for the security of life under their own control rather than the security that comes from being God's people. And Jesus looks at his people and he says, I know your crushing pressure. I know being left out of economic opportunities. I know what it's like to be left out in relationships. I know what you're going through. And then he has an exhortation for them. Here's what you need. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Wait a minute. We're in crushing pressure. You're saying there's more different type of suffering that's coming? That's what Jesus is telling them. And he says, don't fear the suffering. That will get much worse because Satan is on the prowl. See, there's, remember, their suffering is not the result of their sinful cravings or idolatry. There's no rebuke here. God uses suffering to cause his gospel light to shine with brilliance and brightness. And when God's people respond to the catastrophe of their lives and in their lives with hope and joy, the world takes notice, the devil is embarrassed, and the kingdom of Jesus advances. See, God's got a plan, and he's working his plan. The suffering that Jesus prophesied to the Smyrna church will eventually meet every church of Jesus on this planet, even to us in the United States. I am thankful, exceedingly grateful, for the freedoms that we have in this country to do this without fear. We don't have to fear... Uh, oh, oh, I, most churches in the world don't use microphones. They, they're not allowed to meet. But we've already, we already feel the rumblings. In this country, being a Christian will get worse. It will. And we don't, we don't hope, well, I hope, we don't count on, we hope that the government in the United States continues to give us this type of freedom. But here's how it's going to happen first. I'm not prophesying about this. I'm just, it's what happened in Europe. It's what happened everywhere else. See, churches in the United States don't have to pay taxes. There are people right now today in Congress that hate that. So what they'll begin saying is, we're going to take all your, all your tax-free status away. So it's going to first happen economically. I know your poverty. 
The devil will try to come after us first economically. We'll take away what you have enjoyed. Then it'll happen relationally. Remember a few years ago, 2016, uh, there was a Richard Bronson, I believe his name is, a pastor in Ishmir, Smyrna, who was arrested after a coup, a failed coup attempt to the Turkish government. He was arrested on the count of terrorism. That's going to happen here. Because we, to draw any line that says somebody's wrong, because the Bible says it, because God says it, to draw any line like that is going to be considered hate speech and terror. So there's going to come a day when preachers in the United States who stand behind a pulpit and stand on the truth of God's word and proclaim it boldly will say, you hate everybody and you need to be removed from society. That will happen. Now, my parents' generation, hopefully you won't see it. I might see it when I'm your age. 30, 40 years from now, I might see that. I'm really concerned for my children's generation. My grandchildren, they'll know it. They'll know it. Those, they'll need to hear. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Because Satan himself is going to throw you into prison. So, how do we train up the next generation? That's our task. That's where we go. Like I, we, we want the right people in office. We want believers elected. Yes, we want that. That's not our primary tactic, though. Hear me, please. The primary tactic is to live so passionately for Jesus that our children grow up saying, my grandparents live for Jesus. My parents live for Jesus. Why not me? We make it so appealing because our allegiance is Jesus alone. The one who died and has risen to life and stands in glory in heaven for all eternity. That's who we serve. And that's who we shine brightly for our children. So they'll see that Jesus too. And they'll, they'll have the courage and the faithfulness to be faithful unto death, perhaps. There will be a day when persecution in the United States turns physical. We see it, we'll see it again when we look in chapter 12 of Revelation. Remember the dragon and the woman? The dragon can't kill the woman's son, so he's going after her offspring. And the last verse in chapter 12 says this, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. See, we think there's compromise today because people just want to live easy. They don't want the, the pressure of God living. Uh, like, there's this, I don't know. It's almost as if Christians today, I think particularly in our community, Christians today have this desire to want to have life easy, comfortable, successful by their own metric system and, and, and have God along with it for some blessing and for some security. But we know, we're going to see with Laodicea, God doesn't like those. He doesn't have kind things to say about Christians. We're like, yeah, I think I'll just do this my own way. He says, look, hot or cold, no lukewarm. But holding to the testimony of Jesus, that's our lives, y'all. That's our lives. 
That's everything that we are. And we're told by Jesus himself, don't fear the suffering that will happen. How do we not fear that? We look at Jesus and we need the knowledge of Jesus and the vision of Jesus that convinces our hearts to the core that he holds us fast. It's not about our grip on him. It's about discovering his grip on us. So Jesus says, don't fear the suffering. But he also, I think, says, don't fear the spiritual opposition. Because, look, the the devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. There's spiritual opposition we know is happening. And it's, it's real. And God is in complete control of all spiritual opposition. Again, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher. They're above. But here's what he does. He turns Satan tactics back on his head. Remember, Joseph, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Started way back then. What the enemy intends to destroy us, God says, you're the fool. I'm going to turn it back on your head. Satan wants to destroy faith with suffering. He wants to remind us as we're suffering, no, this has to be your fault. You did something wrong. Something like Job's friends sitting around him, like, Job, just admit it, man. You, you didn't do something right. That's why this calamity has come upon you. Job says, no, I'm maintaining my integrity. I, I've trusted God. And his righteousness is not a, uh, it's not a, a moral righteousness necessarily. It's a, a, a faith righteousness. He says, no, I have trusted God and I'm just asking for an answer. If I can have an audience with God and he tells me I've done something wrong, I'll repent. But I can't figure that out right now. Where Satan wants to destroy faith through suffering, God proves our faith through suffering. Then he says, 10 days. 10, remember, a guiding principle. Numbers are more about quality than quantity. Uh, Not a literal 10 days, most probably. This is just a complete time frame, but it's a limited time frame. Satan will have access. Now, God's in control because he's using it to test faith, to refine faith, to prove the devil an idiot. That's what he's doing. And this suffering will come, but it will be limited in scope. And we see that in Job's example. Job suffered some intense crushing, but it was limited. Now, after that, He had the mental pressure that he was dealing with, but the physical pressure, different. And I think sometimes we find ourselves uh, in Satan's prison in our minds. And we need this promise. The one who is first and last, who died and has now been resurrected, wants his resurrection life to find home in us and then be matured and, and shine brilliantly through us. It happens first in our minds. So here's another kingdom metric. Loss is gain. When it looks like the devil's won, he's been defeated. When it looked like the devil killed Jesus and he won, (laughs) just had to wait three days. That was it. And Jesus rising from that tomb proves the devil is a fool. Victory is God's. And here is a 
the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death. You know, the word Smyrna is the Greek word for myrrh, which is the embalming ointment that was used then. But remember, it was one of the gifts that was brought to Jesus uh, by the, the wise men from the, the east. So he's saying, look, you're living in the place known for myrrh. Understand that the life that you live may end with the fragrance before God that heaven rejoices over. But around you, they have no idea what's happening. See, faithfulness that he says, be faithful, is a faithfulness that's sustained by the grace of God. Now think about it. What's the opposite of fear? Faith probably came to mind, right? We've been taught that in church. But the natural sense, the opposite of fear is unconcerned. I'm not concerned. I'm not afraid. Maybe trust in yourself. I don't know. There's a little weird confidence, apathy perhaps. But spiritually, the opposite of fear is faith. Faith is not something that just doesn't care. I just don't care. It's going to work out. That's not faith. That's a hope. It's just going to work out. Here's the thing. Faith looks straight at a situation with confidence that God will use it to advance his kingdom. Now, that means he will use our tribulation, our crushing pressure. He will use our poverty. He will use slander to advance his kingdom. And yet we stand there able to identify with Jesus so we can understand his love for us and, and understand what we have in the divine partaking that Jesus has given us through salvation. And we know God will bring about his glorious good. He will do it. You know, in, in A.D. 155, there was a bishop of Smyrna named Polycarp who lived out exactly what Jesus told the church there, being faithful unto death. Polycarp, uh, being the bishop, they said, "You, hey, pinch the incense. He wouldn't do it. Wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. He brings, they bring him to the arena. And the, the officials there are saying, just say away with the atheist. You don't have to say Caesar is Lord. Just say away with the atheist. Now, back then, the Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in all the gods. So it's weird that they called them that. But they said, just away with the atheists. Polycarp standing there says, for 86 years, the Lord has been faithful. Now, if you look back, now, it could be his birth, but church tradition tells us that he was probably older than 86 at this time, uh, which put him as a boy, a young man, going either to Ephesus or having the Apostle John visit the churches, put him as a disciple of John the Apostle. So that's who, that's who Polycarp got to learn the faith from. But he stands there and said, uh, he was born a slave, but then he was adopted and his adopted mom brought him to faith and baptized him. So it could have been five, six years old. So this man is like 90 or 91, perhaps. He says, for 86 years, the Lord has been by my side. Why would I ever, ever renounce him now? What faith? They were, they were frenzied. Now, look, this is 40,000. Uh, maybe less than that. 20,000, I think, in the arena. I forget what it said uh, in my study. 
20,000 people, at least that, are in the arena. Like, we think going to, like, I, watching two men fight in UFC fighting championship, that's awkward for me. It's like, man, this is weird. Like, blood sports stuff, it's weird. Like, we don't even touch what the Roman Empire did. We don't touch it. That's humane. It has rules. <laughs> no rules. So 20,000 people come because they want to see somebody die. Not just bloodied. Ooh, got a bloody. No, this, they want to see somebody die. And they would spend all day. They'd spend all Saturday out there. they go in the morning. That's when the Christians would come out. Then at midday, the gladiators would come out. And later on, they would just let the, let the animals go after one another. So Polycarp's brought there. They're frenzied. They want him to die. And they go and they're about to fasten him to a, a pole and, and light him on fire. And they were going to fasten him with nails. And he said, you don't have to use nails. I'm not going anywhere. So they tied him to it and lit him on fire. Church tradition says that the fires didn't, <laughs> didn't kill him. So they stabbed him. And his blood put out the fire. But what faithful... What a, what a faithful unto death moment. Because he was trusting. He said, he, was, he said what Stephen said. He looked up and saw Jesus standing there. Prayed for the forgiveness of those who were uh, wanting to kill him. We, we see that return, return, return. And here's the promise. The crown of life. This is a crown of life. Not crowned because we have achieved life. It's crowned, we are given life in Christ. And there's a promise to conquer and escape the second death. I read this week uh, an old uh, quote that said, Those born once die twice. Those born twice only die once. <laughs> you follow that? Those born once will die twice. We have a physical death, but then we have an eternal death that's in we see in Revelation, it's a lake of fire. It's damnation. It is, it's eternity away from God's presence. But those who are born twice only die once. We escape the second death, the punishment, because Jesus took that for us. Now, in conclusion, I think to be reminded of the one who was crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. Let's, let's remember Jesus together as we ask the Lord for faithfulness or celebrate communion in doing that. Um, if you would, just come up through the, the middle and grab the elements and bring them back to your seat. We'll take them together. There's three uh, breads right here, one in the middle with bags, the other two if you want to germ it up because we're trusting the Lord, not COVID. But whatever you're comfortable with. I don't say that to tease anybody. It's just what you're
fall onto my knees in awe. And the heartbeat of my life is to worship in your life. Cause your glory is so beautiful. Your glory is so Comforted by Jesus' knowledge, by experience, and He knows He knows the tribulation because of what He went through. And then we can remind ourselves. Hebrews twelve says, "You know, you haven't fought sin to the point of shedding blood. The battle with sin, Jesus did." experience we just we're aware of his experience through ours and we identify with it but we recognize how much more he went through for us so on that the night that he was to be betrayed he took the bread and he told his disciples this is my body which is broken for you which is crushed for you which is going to endure tribulation for you. And he says, take this and eat it. Identify with it. Understand that I'm with you. I've done this for you to sustain you as you walk. Let's take the bread as we remember. We're told after dinner, he took the cup cup that was a symbol of God's covenant with his people, his presence with his people. And he took that and said, this is now the cup of a new covenant. Because remember what Jesus is doing, he's, he's fulfilling the old covenant in order to inaugurate a new one. He's the only one who could do that. Nobody else could say, hey, that's a new covenant. He said, no, I'm the only one who has to do it because I'm fulfilling the old covenant. And he took that cup and he again said, it's, this is, and it was wine. Remember how wine is made? It's, it's through the crushing of grapes. This is the cup of the new covenant. I, my crushing then becomes for you satisfaction and fulfillment in salvation. My presence is in you. He says, take it, drink it, have it in you glorious picture of his pierced body, his crushing his chastisement that has brought us peace and with his wounds we have healing of our souls let's remember as we take the cup Jesus help us understand that you are always advancing your kingdom in our lives you're advancing it within us to grab on to us or to, to fill us and to, to fill us to capacity even more. So 
Lord, whatever we face, God, we trust that you are advancing your kingdom for our good, for your glory. Pray, Lord, that we would be faithful. That's what we ask. We would be faithful. And we would look more and more like Jesus every day. So people ask questions and they want to know. So we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We ask for faithfulness as you advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's remind ourselves of the Lord's commission upon us. When it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.